Hey folks, I'm David Goldstein. And I'm Brian Brinkman. You are listening to the Beyond the Pond podcast, the podcast in which Mr. Brinkman and myself use the music of Fish to introduce the listener to other songs and our artists we think that they might enjoy. And you can tell from the introduction music that this might be a darker, slightly more foreboding episode of Beyond the Pond. Yeah, this is our fourth episode. We're going to talk about... Uh, the Carini from the December 30th, 2012 show at Madison Square Garden. Um, if this is your first time listening to Beyond the Pond, or if you are back here again, I uh, just want to give you an idea of what we do here. So um, we take a fish jam, a specific fish jam, talk a bit about it, talk about why we picked the jam, significance of the show that the jam came from, Uh, a bit about the tour uh, and the venue that the jam was played at, as well as some of our own personal thoughts, kind of break that down, do a deep dive uh, from a fish perspective, and then we feature uh, a couple other bands, uh, a couple songs that we think thematically uh, really fit that specific jam, um, be it either the key that it's in, the uh, style of play, or some other, uh, uh, you know, loose um, aspects of the song um, that we think uh, is really fitting for the jam. So we've got a really cool episode here today. As David said, it's um, a bit more foreboding uh, than our, our episode last week, at the very least. Um, but really excited for it. Yeah, some of the themes that we're going to explore in this episode include dark and evil fish. The E minor strut and and or sarcastic arrogance in rock music and death and dying in song. But before we get to that, I believe we want to talk about Record Store Day, which was this past um, this past Saturday, actually. Um, so this is, I believe, the 10th edition of Record Store Day, founded back in 2008 as a way to celebrate and spread the word about the unique culture of the record store and the role that independent record stores play in their communities. So now, um, every Record Store Day, there are special vinyl and CD releases that are made exclusively for that day, and vinyl nerds across the country get to line up for the exclusive goodies and they often take place in conjunction with other activities at the record store. I know that um, to welcome the early revelers, my local handed out coffee and donuts. And uh, I guess in the era of big box stores and Amazon and streaming and whatnot, all of which have their place, mind you, um, you know, we should always want to be supporting our local brick and mortar store, independent record stores, because frankly, they're dying off at a rate akin to honeybees. Um, like every day should be record store day, really. I know I try to get to mine as much as possible. Uh, Brian, I know that you participated. What'd you buy? I did. I brought my son out for his first record store day. Got some high fives from, um, a comic store guy, uh, a la Simpsons looking dude, uh, on my way in. Um, I went out and I picked up the new war on drugs, 12 inch, uh, thinking of a place. Um, it was just released on uh, Friday across the musical world, uh, but was released on vinyl um, on Saturday. Uh, went out and got that. I picked up a few other essentials um, that had not. They were not released for Record Store Day, but um, whenever I'm in a record store, I find myself uh, having a hard time not spending. Um, under a hundred dollars, so it was a it was a good day. Uh, waiting in a nice little line. Good to see so many people out for uh, Kachunk Records here in Annapolis, the only record store in Anne Arundel County. Um, really, really great day. Yeah, I went to on uh, East 12th Street between First and Avenue A in the East Village in New York City is. Academy Records. It's kind of confusing because there's a few different academies in New York City. I think this one is Academy LPs. I'm not entirely sure, but it's a very good store. It's about five minutes from my apartment. And um, I picked up a three LP reissue of Neil Young's Decade, which was his classic greatest hits compilation from the early to mid-1970s. Just... uh, very handy to have crisp 
Neil Young compilation at my disposal. And the other thing I got was a seven song sort of um, live 12 inch from the Drive-By Truckers, the long running Athens woke Southern rock band. Um, This past July, they did a small seven song set at New York City's Electric Ladyland Studios. It was put to vinyl, and it makes a very nice companion to their 2016 album, American Band, which, in addition to being extremely relevant to the times, was one of my favorite albums of 2016, and probably their best album in at least 10 years. They really brought it home with that record. So, And record store day releases are necessarily cheap, so those were the two things I got, and I left. At any rate... Already looking forward to Record Store Day 2018. Yeah. Now, at that point, let's talk some fish. So why the 12-30-2012 Carini? One of the reasons that we decided to select this jam for one of our shows is this is an absolutely prime example of evil fish. Um, David, I, I don't know about you. I, you know, I love fish playing funk. I love fish playing psychedelic. But there's something about fish playing downright evil music that just gets me going with them. Oh, yeah, absolutely. They, um... Fish owns the minor keys when they get going, especially E minor, which uh, this Carini jam happens to be in. I mean, I think Trey just loves jamming in E minor. And while I say this is not a music theory podcast, um, you know, I know, Brian, you play a little bit of guitar. I've been playing guitar and trombone and keys most of my life, so I'm able to identify these keys um i will say other examples some recent examples of e minor jamming um the 2006 down with disease from hartford connecticut certainly uh the august 7 2015 tweezer the improv was deep e minor the recent song mercury lots of e minor there um the intro to cavern that big <laughs> that's an e minor chord um what else we got? Sort of like the Bowie conclusion jams, particularly Providence. You get lots of E minor, but it's just, I know that Trey likes going off in that key when it gets very evil and sort of arrogant. Um, mm-hmm. What kind of examples of evil fish can you think of that aren't in that key off the top of your head? I'd go with, uh, first and foremost, the SPAC 95 down with disease into free is sure. uh, 40 minutes of, I mean, you could pick a, any number of summer 95 space jam evil jams that they did but that one in particular is really really uh, uh intense um the cypress mics i think is a great place to start for any sort of evil fish just the way that that jam builds over 15 minutes it um kind of harkens back from a effect standpoint to that shoegaze episode that we did that one suffocates you it's yes. a great suffocation <laughs> the air gets thick the air gets thick everything i've ever heard every picture i've ever seen from cyprus that has anything to do with that mics the stage is just bright red uh it looks like an alien uh spaceship is landing um a couple others uh the wolfman's brother from uh november 30th 1997 in uh, Worcester, Mass. Uh, night three, right? Night three. Not everybody's favorite jam. Not mine by any means. It's um, they get into essentially one riff, and I think at some point Trey hides behind his uh, amplifier. Um, but it just is this building riff over and over and over again. Um, and then from that, uh, the following spring, uh, the Island Tour Piper. Uh, such a great gem, how they bring that piper down into the the uh, conclusion of the song proper and then jam off of the conclusion of the song. I feel like it's the only time they've ever actually jammed in that style off of piper. And it's just dark and ominous and it just builds slowly and slowly and Paige owns it. I, I love it. 
You know, also as a companion to the 2016 Hartford Down with Disease, the Chicago Night One at Wrigley, the mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. 2016 is also E minor going down the Autobahn Evil Jam. And really while underrated the, jam from early 2016, I would say. Yeah, the Wrigley shows themselves, in and themselves, I don't think were particularly special. That could be the highlight of both of those, those shows, I think. Yeah. Um, I would say as well, uh, just regarding this Carini, this is definitely one of the strongest jams of 3.0 uh, across the board. By far. Um, and we should be celebrating the fact that we're doing a 3.0 jam so early. Uh, we've done some great 97, 98, 99 jams, but uh, it's cool that we're, we're uh, featuring some 3.0 here. We're talking about the 3.0 Carini Renaissance, some of the ones that we have lifted here, listed as being particularly good. October 12th of 2010, um, September 14th of 2011 from Essex Junction in Vermont. Not a particularly good show. The Karini no. is probably the highlight. Definite highlight. June 7th of 2012, that was the summer tour opener in Worcester. That goes into uh, something of like a My Left Toe Jam as well before right. seeing into uh, Taste, I believe it is. Yeah, Taste. That yeah. set. It's all about the boogie on regular woman for me, but yeah. Yeah, you so. got a great ghost jam in there as well. I mean, that, that Worcester right. show really set everyone straight after that uh, uh, 2011 New Year's run. Mm. Um, later that summer, bookending here, uh, the 831 2012 uh, jam from Dick's third song of this show uh, was really the moment where it seemed like this Dick show was going to do something um, – really unexpected they were clearly on a on a high at that point um the following summer i believe you were at the show uh 7 6 2013 up at SPAC. right saratoga right that was the carini um gets away from darkness goes into a very bright major chord hose jam into architect mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that was the second night of a three-night run probably the weakest still a pretty good show yeah, the Carini is a, a great moment. There was that really wild split open and melt earlier in the show. Yes. <clears throat> uh, Hampton had a groovy Carini. Uh, and uh, Atlantic City, that Halloween, had a 19-minute A major jam that uh, is awesome. It's very sectional, goes through. Uh, it's kind of in that cubist fish jamming style where they would play one theme for three to four minutes and then somehow find themselves writing another theme out of it. Um, MSG 2013 had the Echoplex Carini and um, uh, August 30th, 2014 from Dix just two years later. Um, you know, that summer Trey spent so much of the tour kind of hiding back and sitting back within the, within the band and this jam, he just completely full-on attacks it. It's it's a complete hose trade jam. It's unbelievable. Um, I would say as well, you know, you, you combine it with the, or you compare it to the Dix version from uh, just a few months prior. It really avoids the modulation that uh, that, that Dix trend um, had really started, which had brought them so much success. Uh, you heard it mm. in Tweezer just a couple nights prior at Madison Square Garden. Um to me, I don't know if you agree with this, that this is the kind of jam that really showcased their growth and really willingness to take chances heading into 2013. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the night before New Year's is, uh, you know, often supposed to be very, very good, often the night before the night, which you might talk about a bit later. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I mean, you know, you didn't really expect in the play – such an evil jam out of Carini, so much like Pink Floyd, so much like um, Angel Dust era Faith No More, which will be discussed at length later in the episode. <laughs> I mean, basically, it was so evil that the only song they could play afterwards was Number Line, and they did. <laughs> they totally did. Um, so, yeah, as you were saying, uh, in, in terms of this being a really good show, you know, night before uh, New Year's Eve, um, I think we both would agree this was the best show of that 12, 2012 New Year's Eve run. You, you had a, a good show on the 28th, but this was really the strongest overall. Yeah, definitely. I would say this is the best, then the 28th, then New Year's, and then the 29th is lagging behind. 
Yes. Right. This was one of the best shows of 2012, which, you know, in all, I would say this is one of the strongest years of 3.0. Where, where would you have this stacking up? Um, I'd put 2015 on top, 2013 closely on its heels, and then 2012. There's some moments where we have some good disagreements, but this one we don't disagree at all. I'm, I'm right there with no. you in terms of that. Um, yeah, 2012 was a real uh, awakening for fish in terms of 3.0. I feel like 2009, 10, 11, it was just really great to have them back. 2012 was when it really became clear that they were going to try to do some new and unique things with their music. Yeah, no, 2012 was definitely the year that got me back on the train full bore, so yeah. to speak, yeah. when they just completely threw down at that June 7th, 2012 Worcester show, which I'm pretty sure it wasn't even sold out. I remember checking tickets and thinking, geez, fish can't sell out like Thursday night in Worcester. Like, what's what the hell is going on? <laughs> but, yeah, that... Um, Certainly, it was a very, very strong summer tour. And then with the 8-31-12 show, that was when they announced, we're not going anywhere. Yeah. <laughs> um, this show, uh, really jammy set, too. You got a great uh, down Z's, very loose style jamming. Um, you got Slave closing out set, two, and then Hood uh, starting up the encore. Um Ride Captain Ride. This was one of 17 all time. Um, first in three shows, though, it was uh, one of those rare moments where you heard it uh, uh, slightly in the rotation. Um, I remember loving this first set, uh, especially when you compare it to a lot of other uh, 3.0 first sets that kind of um, uh, you know fall into recitals. Um, but this was a really great thematic show overall, and. Um, like you were saying earlier, this was uh, this was a very classic um, in in the vein of a, a night before the night show. You know, the idea that everyone expects them to come out with a big party on New Year's Eve, and they're going to zag against any expectations and play uh, you know the strongest show of the run the night before that. Um, How about this? Why don't we listen to it? Let's do it. All right.
And that is some great dark, dark, dark fish. So, in terms of the jam in a larger musical context, we're going to divvy this up into two segments. Two segments of three songs each. And segment number one, we're going to focus on significant songs and jams that are in the key of E minor, which this crudy most definitely is. So the first song I picked out, which I think should probably be familiar to a bunch of listeners, is Kiss Off by the Violent Femmes. And the Violent Femmes, most people, almost everyone with a pulse will know the song Blister in the Sun because it has the riff that's played at baseball games. It's endlessly repeated everywhere you go. You can hear the dun 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 yeah, you did it right there, of course. <laughs> um, Kiss Off is the second song on the first Violent Femmes record after Blister in the Sun. And the first Violent Femmes album, in addition to being a major sleepaway camp hit through people of all ages, is one of my favorite albums of all time. Um, it's completely perfect. It's, I think it came out in 1983. It's acoustic punk teenage angst just beautifully summed up in over a half hour and it was so perfect that it was impossible to follow up and although they've had several good songs since then throughout their career um they never made anything as good as their first record it's a dilemma that's occurred to bands like the strokes uh, i guess more recently interpol perfection on the first try and therefore there's really nowhere to go but down from that point and the Violent Femmes are Brian Ritchie, Victor DiLorenzo, and, of course, Gordon Gano, who's the uh, sort of whiny sort of, I guess you could almost say, fade troubadour. And Kiss Off, it's the verses are in E minor. I think the chorus goes from C to D, but it just kind of demonstrates the, the E minor. It's a little bit sarcastic, a little bit arrogant. It's extremely catchy, and um, the Violent Femmes are actually touring this summer with Echo and the Bunnymen, if you want your big 80s indie throwback. I mean, they played every college known to man throughout the 90s multiple times. Uh, they had an acrimonious breakup in the mid-00s for a variety of reasons. I think they got back together two years ago because they figured they could make some money and have some fun, and that's where they are now. But uh, this is, to me, is one of my favorite E minor riffs. So we're going to play it for you. I need someone, a person to talk to, someone who care to love. Could it be you? Could it be you? Situation gets rough, and I start to panic. It's not enough. It's just a habit, a kid, you're sick. Darling, this is it You can all just kiss off into the air Behind my back I can see them stare They'll hurt me bad, but I won't mind They'll hurt me bad, they do it all the time Yeah, yeah, yeah they do it all the time Yeah, yeah, they do it all the time They do it all the time They do it all the time That takes me back to junior high and college, working in a pizza shop, and pretty much any period in my life that uh, was wayward without really much direction, where I had a, uh, just a sense of humor to guide me. Thank you. I mean, that album's timeless. It's everyone's junior high school and high school, even though it came out like 30 years ago. I won't it's be just... surprised if 
when my son turns like 12 or 13, he comes up to me and says, hey, have you ever heard of the Violent Femmes? And it will feel just as new to him as it did to me when they came out. Right. Um, I love it. So, cool. The next song that we're going to pick, uh, somewhat surprised it's taken us four episodes to feature this band. I can guarantee everyone that this is not the last time you'll hear from them. Um, oh. And it's almost one of those bands we don't necessarily need to feature because they are... Uh, just so fantastic, and in some ways, you know, in terms of their fantastic live shows and their huge following, uh, they are uh, very heavily appreciated within the fish community, rightly so. But we're gonna do it anyway because they kick so much ass. Uh, we're gonna talk about Radiohead's "Punch Up at a Wedding." This is a great E minor song um, off of "Hail to the Thief." Really captures the thematic spirit of. Uh, this Karini, when you hear the the riff here um, at the start of it, it really feels in a lot of ways like um, that really dark, um, just kind of ominous section at the start of Karini. But, um, you know, it's interesting. We were talking about Hail to the Thief before uh, we did this show, because um, anytime you bring up Radiohead, you can just go off for 30 minutes. Um, this is almost like a filler track on Hail to the Thief, which is, uh, which is kind of wild to think about with Radiohead. You don't really get a lot of filler, but this was an album that... Um, I think it had 14 songs. Had 14 songs, and it was, it was really interesting in the sense that, you know, OK Computer obviously was such a um, breakthrough for the band. Kid A was another breakthrough in a completely different direction. Amnesiac, uh, kind of a coda to Kid A's... Um, uh, very minimalistic, uh, technology-driven record. Um, Hail to the Thief is so interesting in the sense that it's like the band put, like pressed pause and looked back on the last 10 years of their career and kind of said, all right, we can do all of these different things. We can play all these different styles of music. Now we're going to do it across one album. And, um, I mean, Hail to the Thief, as we were saying, it has 14 songs, and you don't really think of Radiohead so much as having filler because their albums are so meticulously sequenced and fat-free. But almost, I mean, Hell of the Thieves seems to me, strikes me as the one album that you can almost put it on shuffle and it wouldn't sound terribly different. And um, this song, it's a great song, which I love. I don't know how many people are going to yell out for at the show. But there's also some songs, I don't know, like We Suck Young Blood. Not a very good song. Didn't have to make the record. I'm not a huge fan of Mixomatosis. I could even do without I Will. Like, you know, there's even, I think, Hail to the Thief had put it in my bottom tier of Radiohead albums, and yet it's still 800 times better than most bands can do on their best day just because it's objectively Radiohead. You know, it's interesting for me um, in terms of it, like where it is now. I feel like this album has aged really well. And I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I I did not like Hail to the Thief when it came out. I think I was expecting uh I really wanted Kid A Part Two. I was super into Kid A at that point in time and um the kind of variety pack that you get out of Hail to the Thief did not appeal to me. But in recent years, um, I love how the guitars once again come back, but they mix with all these effects that they had really mastered. And um, I love the first, pretty much the entire first side of the of the record. I love um, everything through There There, I think is absolutely brilliant. There There being, I would argue, if not the best Radiohead song, um, top two or three Radiohead songs. I'll give you a top ten, certainly. <laughs> but the first side of that record also includes We Suck Young Blood and Where I End and You Begin, which is like, that's like B-Game U2, so. I love that song. I, oh, really? Okay. I, do. I really love that song. This is good. This is good. Uh, dig- uh, disagreement <laughs> is, 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 is healthy for us here. Um, why disagreement don't we, is very healthy. <laughs> why, don't we, why don't we listen to a punch-up at a wedding and, uh, and we'll duke this out in the back room.
That was uh, some excellent Colin Greenwood E minor bass line in that Punch It Bad Wedding. So the final song we're going to discuss in the E minor portion of the show is from uh, one of my favorite bands of all time off of one of my favorite albums of all time. This is Desert Island, top five album. We're going to talk about the band Faith No More, and the song is called Smaller and Smaller off of the 1992 album Angel Dust. And this song is, you could call, evil progressive rock jam in E minor. Um, It leads out with kind of a death march that is very similar to the Carini jam. I remember thinking as I saw it live, wow, okay, Trey is absolutely channeling Angel Dust era Faith No More. Um, When most people hear about Faith No More, they think about uh, their biggest hit, which was Epic, which kind of, um, I guess it kind of introduced rap metal, rap rock to the masses. And then it was bastardized by much more awful, less creative bands down the way. I guess you could almost say Faith No More paved the way for Corn and Limp Biscuit, kind of almost like when Dr. Miles Dyson, he created T-800. He thought he was doing it to help mankind and couldn't see T-1000 coming down the bend. Wasn't his fault. But, um, so, yeah, that was... Um, let me get back on track there for a sec. <laughs> that, was, that was a good digression. <laughs> it was the Terminator digression. <laughs> Couldn't help myself. Talking about the early '90s, you can't you can't leave out Terminator. No, exactly. You cannot you cannot leave out Terminator. But anyway, that song was um, off the Fifth No More album, "The Real Thing," where Mike Patton. Um, the singer of Faith No More, singer frontman, he kind of came on at the very last minute when they fired their first singer, Chuck Mosley, and he sort of, I think, wrote all the lyrics for the real thing in the course of uh, like two weeks or thereabouts. So with Angel Dust came out in 1992, he was involved in all the songwriting, was much more on board. It was more of a full band effort, and the result was something much more evil and much weirder than people had expected from Faith No More. And I think the album, when it came out, it did not sell as well. It got mixed reviews, despite being a metallic prog rock, just wallop. There's King Crimson, there's Rush, um, there's all kinds of metal that I very much enjoy. And that was the single off that record was Midlife Crisis, which is maybe my favorite Faith No More song. And um, just worth pointing out, the front man in that band, Mike Patton, he's um, a man of many talents. I know he heads up the Ipecac record label, which puts out all sorts of bizarre noise rock. And he's been featured in the band Tomahawk. He had a project called Peeping Tom. He's done work with Dan the Automator. And he's also put out solo records. He plays the voice. Um, I saw him back, I want to say, 2002 in a small bar in New York City with just a microphone and a soundboard. And for an hour and a half, it sounded like sticking your head in a jet engine. He's a, a vocal terrorist, and he's one of my idols. I also, He's also the front man of the band, Mr. Bungle, whose self-titled 1991 album, in addition to being extremely puerile, was a uh, Jewish sleepaway camp classic. And um, but if you like metal, if you like evil, if you like invention, you got to get yourself some Fifth No More Angel Dust, and we're gonna play the song. I got I gotta say before before we play it, this listening to these guys brought me back to uh, sixth and seventh grade, listening to the Q one hundred one radio station in Chicago, the mm-hmm. alternative. Uh, the song Epic would come on like late hours um, and like the weekends. And to me, it was like hearing early Nirvana, early, early Pearl Jam, early um, Red Hot Chili Peppers, um, and always felt like the origin of kind of that grunge movement. Um, so shout out to James Van Osdell, Robert Chase, who I later used to listen to on the trail in Missoula, Montana. Those are two of my favorite DJs who basically huh. made the formation for... Uh, uh, the foundation for uh, where I would go in terms of music. So let's uh, let's do some faith and more now. Drive me to work out. 
right. Hope you guys enjoyed our first section of music. Uh, we focused on uh, great E minor jams. We're going to talk a little bit right now about uh, what we've been listening to recently uh, in terms of new albums. David, what uh, what have you been listening to lately? Brian, the record I'm going to pick is by a young New York band called Charlie Bliss. The album is called Guppy. Um, I only learned about this album... Last weekend when I read about it in Pitchfork, I read about it on the blog Stereo Gum. It got a really good review uh, in the AV Club as well. So I'm 37 years old, which means in the mid-90s I was staying up and watching 120 Minutes, Alternative Nation, listening to uh, Alternative Rock Radio. So I've got a thing for really uh, sticky, sweet power pop. I'm talking The Rentals. Um, some letters to Cleo, Fountains of Wayne, Weezer, especially that type of sticky, sweet '90s power pop that might incorporate moogs, some heavy bass lines. So, Charlie Bliss, they embody that style because they are absolutely a '90s throwback power pop band. But they take that style and they absolutely nail it to a fucking wall. <laughs> I mean, it's more of like they enter the bodies of their idols because this record is so catchy and so well produced and the guitar solos are so perfectly placed. The lyrics are very funny. Um, It's fronted by a woman named Ava Hendricks who kind of has like sort of like a bratty cheerleaderly like voice, um, sort of akin to um, like Kay Hanley from Letters to Cleo. Or even Anna Waronker from That Dog, who I'm sure Charlie Bliss has listened to many, many times. I'm going to go out on a limb and say, even though I've only had this record for a weekend, it could be the purest power pop record since Fountains of Wayne's Welcome Interstate Managers, which came out in 2003. And it's just a marvel of production. You should uh, listen to that record a lot if you have not already. So... If you have a thing for 90s power pop, you have to get this record as soon as possible because it's extremely good. Yeah, this, uh, my first thought, that it reminded me in some cases of uh, really great K-pop songs that I heard. <laughs> oh. Um, music <laughs> well. just so catchy that it makes your heart hurt. It's just, it the, the, the riffs on it, the hooks were just so good that, um, uh, I don't know, I just... That warm and fuzzy feeling that you want from from power pop like this. The K-pop songs are art forms. Those aren't done overnight. Those are meticulously put together. Yes, yes. Much like this, three years to 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 make this record. It, uh, I think they started recording in mid two thousand fourteen, which is really amazing. Right. And I guess the first draft they said it was too grungy, so they kind of threw out the tapes, and then went for more of a pop aesthetic, mm-hmm. and it pays off in dividends. Yeah, totally does. So what do you got? Um, So I'm going to break the rules a little bit. I've got two singles off of two upcoming records, uh, two 10-minute-plus singles. Um, Mm. So I I figure this kind of shakes out to be half an album here. Um, Kamasai Washington, uh, uh, his song Truth off this forthcoming uh, EP, Harmony of Difference. Um, This is some really, really warm, focused experimentation from the saxophone virtuoso um if you have not listened to uh his 2015 epic uh, trip triple uh album called yes the epic um you absolutely need to be doing that uh one of my favorite records from that year uh washington grew up in la uh played on kendrick lamar's to pimp a butterfly um and has you know really just he spent years kicking around LA jazz clubs and has really come into his own from a national uh, star uh, over the last couple of years. But this was just a really, really beautiful uh, um, improvisational piece that never once felt like it's wandering for wandering's sake. It was really focused, um, really, really fantastic stuff, about 13 minutes long. So uh, Commonside Washington's Truth. And then um, Friday, uh, the War on Drugs released uh their new track first new song in three years thinking of a place uh off of these well i'm guessing we don't know yet there's still unknown new lp uh we've been told that there's gonna be a new record in 2017 by all accounts this would be the first single off of it 
Um, this is uh, I Will Go Out on a Limb. I think this is the best song I've heard since 2014. Mm-hmm. Uh, since I would probably say Eyes to the Wind off of Lost in the Dream by them. Um, this is 11 minutes. It is absolutely gorgeous. It is uh, very spacious. Um, the riff that brings the song in uh, out of this really just beautiful kind of haunting synth intro uh, and follows it throughout the track. Uh, I found myself just whistling it all weekend long. It sounds fantastic on vinyl. The lyrics are, uh, you know, the types of uh, war on drug lyrics that you can define about any part of your life. And it's equally optimistic and somewhat uh, uh, dark and uh, isolated. It's just, it's unbelievable. Gave me every single feel possible. Yeah, one of the highlights of my Friday was getting to my office and getting a text message from you saying, new war on drugs single. So after uh, (laughs) I got that text message, I went to, I don't know, some website that was playing it in full. And I agree, uh, certainly... As we discussed earlier, I think in the first episode of our podcast, Lost in the Dream is one of my favorite records, definitely one of your favorite records. And this song shows that he really, he hasn't missed a step. I mean, it kind of hits all the war on drugs beats that you expect and you want, while at the same time kind of moving the sound forward. The guitar solo is very Robert Fripp. It's, uh, he's still luxuriating in the 80s keyboards and 80s production and no it was uh i think i listened to it about seven or eight times since i first heard it it's it really augurs well for what's to come next and i was very happy that that's that's what he put out i did not buy it on record store day because i think it was in my store i think it was like ten dollars and at that point, I think it already spent about 75 so it was a strategic choice not to break the bank anymore. But, You'll get it when it comes out. It's um, Oh, yeah. Rest assured, when the real thing comes out, the album, that will be – if you could line up outside the stores at midnight like you could, I would be there for that album. So our second segment uh, is going to really embrace the full-on darkness of the Karini um, and, and of really evil – Dark Fish. Um, this song just sounds like a trip into Hades, uh, this jam. Um, and so we wanted to talk about some songs that um, kind of take that own little walk thematically. So uh, songs that focus on uh, the idea of death, the idea of dying, um, some pretty heavy tunes that really resonate clearly with this Karini. The first one that we have is um, from a uh, UK experimental artist, The Hacks and Cloak. It's a stage name of uh, Bobby Krillick uh, off of his 2013 record, uh, Excavation. The song is called Excavation Part 2. Um, this is uh, off of his second LP. came out in 2013. It's a bit more electronic, uh, features a very heavy bass, uh, compared to his first record, which, interestingly, he recorded over the course of three years in his parents' shed. He played all the instruments on this, which was an assortment of stringed instruments, uh, mics. Uh, you can imagine his own vocal terrorizing over the mics, um, as well as integrating his laptop. Uh, this one is a little bit more uh, beat-heavy, but it's still very sparse on the, on the beat. Uh, thematically, the whole purpose of the record was to um track the journey one soul takes following death um and it's uh somewhat terrifying the approach that he takes um he really uh views death as a uh, confounding uh illogical experience um and as you'll hear from this song it's it's very haunting in the same sort of way that that Karini is um so let's go ahead and uh, and give that a listen right now. Uh-huh. 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 U
Well, that was indeed an intense and bass-heavy trip, I will say. Um, you know, Brian, I wasn't very familiar at all with the Hacks and Cloak until you told me about it. I've been listening to that record. It's certainly um, not something for a nice Sunday drive, but it's uh, it's quite... The dude is extremely talented at creating a dark, suffocating atmosphere. It's mood music. And, yeah, you could say that. I mean, and speaking of things that happen to be somewhat suffocating uh next band we're going to talk about here is the band called death heaven and this song is luna off of their most recent album new bermuda and the genre to which i guess death heaven plays there's sort of kind of a shoegaze band except with intense black metal vocals so sometimes they get called i guess metal gaze because often the guitars, they harken back to the like suffocating, full-on several tracks of the shoegaze genre, which we discussed at length in episode two. But with the uh, cookie monster screaming that people often associate with black metal. Um, I know when their album um, Sunbather, before New Bermuda, that came out, that uh, album, I think that was their second album. I believe the first one was called Road to Judah. The second album, Sunbather, caused quite a stir in uh, like indie rock circles. And then, you know, people were saying, are these guys really good? Are they really metal? Is it shoegaze? Are they posers? Because they happen to be quite handsome guys who look like really intense baristas or like a gap at all, clad in black and kind of like staring out at the listener. And um, they were formed back in 2010 in San Francisco. Their name is an homage to the shoegaze band Slow Dive, also discussed back in episode two. And I think we picked this song in particular because in addition to just being extremely intense and extremely rocking and um, a huge soundscape, which often um, I think the second part of the song sort of turns into more of like a post-rock, uh, like tortoise 90 Chicago type thing. Let's go ahead and, uh, and throw this on. you are all awake now. Um, we are going to uh, talk about one of my favorite artists of all time, uh, Cass McCombs, um, and his song off of his fifth record, 2011, 2011's Wit's End, uh, the song Buried Alive. Um, again, this came off of his fifth album, uh, which along with 2009's Catacombs and 2016's Maggie Love are really his uh, his best work, uh, his best um, example of his kind of West Coast, lyrically adventurous, uh, vagabond style. Um, I almost feel like if you fuse Dylan's mid-60s with his early to mid-70s soundscapes, uh, you'd get something in the form of Cass McCombs. Um, this is one of the, just the prettiest, one of the darkest records of 2011. It's very, very sparse. There's roads throughout it, Hammond B3s, brush drums. It's very close to like Leonard Cohen or Elliot Smith. Um, what are your thoughts on this record and on this song, David? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly I enjoyed this record very much when it came out. And, you know, this song in particular, it's kind of sparse. It's kind of warm at the same time. I mean, there's 
And like you said, the album, I believe it's kind of built around the idea of, um, I guess, how you get lonely sometimes. You come up with these big ideas that give you meaning for a second, but then leave you like everything else leaves you. And that's, um, is that a quote from Gaspar Combs we got? Yeah, that was a quote uh, he gave in an interview right around the time the record came out. That that kind of, okay. like everything else leaves you, kind of <laughs> says everything about what this record is. Um, I love it. It's, it's um uh, kind of a mood record. It's not really something that I can throw on um, at all times, but um, you know, songs like "Buried Alive," uh, "County Line," their album's opener, and "A Knock Upon the Door," the album's closer, um, really just uh, kind of give you this hazy, kind of woozy, uh, late hours of the evening uh, type of sensation and um, are really the kind of songs that if you allow yourself to really fall into them, um, the lyrics paint this really spectacular image of like a completely different uh, world. The music really just kind of embraces you in a really warm hug. I I, I love it. I think it's great. And it's definitely not Fish is Buried Alive. Totally different song. Definitely not Fish is Buried Alive. No. All right, let's check it out. the end just wanted to recap the songs and the artists that we just listened to in the first segment being gems in e minor we had kiss off by the violent femmes punch up at a wedding yeah punch up at a wedding by radiohead off of uh the hail to the thief album we had smaller and smaller by faith no more off of their album angel dust then we had excavation part two by the Hacks and Cloak to kick off the Death and Dying in Song segment. Then we had Luna by Deaf Heaven off of the new Bermuda album. And finally, we had Buried Alive by Cass McCombs off of the album Wits End. Awesome. And uh, I want to thank everyone who's come back to listen uh, to episode four. If you're just joining us here, welcome to Beyond the Pond. Uh, just a quick snapshot of where you guys can find us online. Uh, we are active on Twitter at underscore beyond the pond. Um, we are on Facebook at uh, uh, fish beyond the pond. Uh, we've got a medium blah, blog that we use to write a bit more about our episodes as well as link to uh, songs and whatnot that we uh, we, we, we like throughout the the, the episode. Yeah, you can find that at medium.com slash beyond the pond. If you've got a question, if you've got some feedback, any insight, if you want to recommend a jam for us, feel free to email us at beyondthepondpodcast at gmail.com. And then finally, we update our Spotify playlist day after every uh, episode with uh, whatever fish jam is available on Spotify, but more importantly, the songs that we feature um, throughout uh, at beyond the pond podcast playlist we'll link that up in our uh, medium page on facebook and on twitter as well i will give you fair warning this fish jam is not available on spotify should be pretty easy for you to seek out otherwise in terms of publishing structure we're looking to go up every other tuesday because tuesdays are quite possibly the least enjoyable day of the week 
Got to give you something to look forward to. And with that said, I am David Goldstein. I'm Brian Brinkman. And we hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond the Pond. Maybe a little more downbeat than episodes past. We can already promise you that episode five will be upbeat and melodic. So if you made it this far, thank you very much for listening. And join us next time as we go Beyond the Pond.